My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. Our Sunday School is part of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. To prepare for this lesson, please go to OurSundaySchool.com for a copy of today's handout. Now, let's get to this week's lesson. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Our Sunday School. Glad you guys are with us this morning. Uh, today is probably going to be the most different day in our series in Mark than we have had up to this point. And considering this is week 164, we're covering a lot of ground with that statement. So just be aware of that uh, concept. So a couple of things to start this morning. First, thank you, Miss Amy V, for a fantastic lesson last week. Uh, went back and listened to it a couple of times this week, and it was just like, ah, oh, so good. Let the women do the work. I was like, ah, oh, that was just... Um, Brian would say that was a grand and glorious line, so there's that. Uh, second thing on my list of things to do this morning, <clears throat> uh, happy 29th birthday to my uh, beautiful wife, and uh, we are, uh, I am thrilled uh, that you get to have another I mean, 29th birthday, and, uh, and there's that, so happy birthday, love you babe, you're welcome. <laughs> Uh, and then the third thing I have on my list is the lesson. So let's get to the lesson. So here we go. So we are in uh, Mark chapter 16 today, uh, starting in verse 9 today. But as we do each week, let's read through the entire chapter. So I'll read through Mark 16. Hello, good morning to everybody online. Uh, Ronald and Nancy and Jessica, good to have you all with us this morning. So let's read through Mark chapter 16, and then we'll jump into... Also, the longest PowerPoint I have ever done in this series. So, uh, fun stuff today. Here we go. So, Mark 16. <clears throat> so, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they had heard it, he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons." They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. 
And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. All right, so did anybody hear my big long pause between verses 8 and 9? Yeah. Uh, there's a reason. Because in your Bibles, in, I'm saying not in all of your Bibles, and we'll talk about that too, uh, but in most of your Bibles, there is some verbiage in between verse 8 and 9. Most of them even in the electronic version. So we're going to talk about that stuff in between verses 8 and 9 for probably 20 minutes, maybe 25 this morning, and then we'll get to verses 9 through 13. So there's a question, and the question we're going to try to answer today is where did Mark's gospel originally end? So this is the big million-dollar question that we want to look at this morning. So the first thing that I have told our class to do for I don't know how long, Miss Amy, but when we have a question about the text, where do we first look? The text, yes, absolutely. So let's look at the text. Um, so what I've got here are the uh, six of the first six top best-selling uh, English translations of the Bible uh, by, who is it, uh, Evangelical Christian Publishers Association. Yay. I have no idea who that is. But they track Bible sales, which I can't imagine, like, you get up in the morning and you track Bible sales. Like, ooh, somebody should build an app for that, right? I mean, this seems like you could, could outsource this. Uh, all right, so this is, this is the text that's in between verses 8 and 9 for each of the major English translations. So NIV, some other stuff is not have 9 through 20. King James, crickets, right? We'll talk about that in a minute. New Living Translation, uh, the most ancient manuscripts of Mark conclude with verses, uh, verse 16, 8. All right, ESV, some of the earliest manuscripts don't include 9 through 20. New King James, crickets, again, we'll talk about that. And then the Christian Standard Bible, some of the earliest manuscripts, uh, MSS is like Bible shorthand for manuscripts, uh, conclude with 16.8. So like this is the, so, so most of the really recent Bible translations give you some sort of a, hey, 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 like question mark about this. And if you look at your handout, if you look at your handout on, oh gosh, page 552. <laughs> The Word document is beyond unstable at this point. So I am, I am thankful Mark only has 16 chapters because it, it, it would not have held a 17th. <laughs> um, but at the very beginning of verse 9, if you, if you look down there where it says Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, what do you see right between the 9 and the now? Double brackets. You're like, well, I'm going to put my high school English hat on. What did double, bra double brackets don't mean anything in our language, right? This is the way most English translations alert you to the fact that, uh, we're not quite, exactly. Do that again. Yes, that, that squint one, I'm like, I don't, like, what is that? Perfect. That's exactly what the translators want you to do when you get to that text, is have a, uh, I'm not so sure about that. So we'll come back to the handout in a couple of minutes. But I want to walk through some terms that we need to be familiar with before we begin this conversation. Because you, you can get really wrapped around the axle on some terms. And I want to be super crystal clear about what some things are. So the first term we want to know uh, is the autograph. The autograph. So have any of you ever met somebody famous? Who have you met? Leslie Jordan. Leslie Jordan. When did you meet Leslie Jordan? Yesterday. 
could not have happened at a bit. When I saw the picture, I was like, oh, I know what the example is going to be tomorrow in Sunday school. That's exactly where this is going. Uh, did you get an autograph? No. You got something better. What'd you get? You got a picture. That's exactly right. Oh, a picture with Leslie. I mean, you would have had to get down. I, I can't imagine how. Sorry. That's two days in a row, Mitch. I apologize. So there's that. Somebody put something on my Facebook page yesterday about short people. That's exactly right. Uh, all right, so the autograph. The autograph is the original document. So think about, think about when, when Mark was writing the gospel, the piece of paper, the scroll, the whatever he was writing on, that's the autograph. So two things about the autograph. We don't have them, right? And that's okay. <laughs> if we did have them, We've talked about this several times. We very likely would worship this. We would sell access to it. We, I mean, it was like, here, get your selfie with Mark Scott. I mean, it's, there'd be all kinds of wonkiness that would be happening with this. It would not be good, right? So we don't have the autographs. Because we don't have the autographs and because Mark didn't have a camera, the way that you made copies of this is you took what Mark wrote and you had another scroll or papyrus and you hand copied and you hand copied, and you hand copied, and you hand copied. And when you got finished with that one, you did another one. And when you got finished with that one, you did another one. And when you got finished with that one, you did another one. And they would send multiple copies out to lots of different locations. Now, when you got a copy, guess what the first thing you did? You made a copy. Because this is my only copy. I want to make a copy of this. This is really, really good. Great. So you made a copy, and you made a copy, and you made a copy, and you send it out. And guess what the first thing you did when you got a copy? You made a copy, yes. There were copies all over the place. The New Testament is the single most copied document in antiquity. Like, hard stop, that's that. It, it's, it's by an order of a hundred more copied than anything else in antiquity. So it's not like, oh, well, the, like we have 12, no, 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 we have thousands and thousands. I've got a slide here in a minute. I'll talk about how many thousands. It's so exciting. All right, so that's the autograph. Second term to know is textual variant. And we've talked about these as we've gone through Mark, right? So we see that sometimes some manuscripts will use this word, some manuscripts will use this word. And you're like, well, how does that happen? Do you remember the copies? Not every copy was a flawless reproduction of the original. Now, there's two types of textual variants. There's deliberate alter, uh, altercations, and there's inadvertent altercations. Altercation, alterations, sorry, it's not altercation. They were not fighting over this, right? Sorry. I'm so excited about the next few slides. It's like, gotta get through the words here. So there were times, and we, we feel very, very confident that we can actually identify through the next word that we're gonna talk about, where a scribe went, oh, this isn't clear. I wanna make this clearer. Uh, wish you hadn't have done that, man. <laughs> you know, it's like that's, uh, when we talk, I don't know what, what your place does. My workplace talks about best practice a lot. Like this is the best practice, the way to do this thing. That is not best practice. Best practice is to leave the text alone, <laughs> right? And I, I think all of us were like, well, yeah, we wouldn't go like changing God's work. Well, there we go. So just, I just wanted to be familiar with the terms. So the variant it, are the actual changes themselves from the original. Textual criticism is the study of the variants. And you're like, wait, that's a whole branch of study? Yes, it's a whole branch of study. 
and it's crazy complicated. I'll show you a picture of it here in just a minute. And then the last, uh, <clears throat> the last term is uh, eclecticism. Eclecticism. So this is the idea that instead of looking for one entire copy of the New Testament, which really, quite frankly, doesn't exist anywhere near the time these things were actually written, Instead of looking for one entire copy, we look at lots and lots and lots and lots of copies and compare them and try to construct what we think the best version actually is or the original version actually was. Now, if you, and I want to make sure that I'm super clear with my assumptions here, if you adopt the philosophy of eclecticism, it will naturally lead you to a very specific outcome. So we'll talk about that when we get to the major uh, Greek texts uh, here in a couple of minutes. All right, so a couple Markian terms to, to know. And if I haven't said this word yet, it's my least favorite word in all the study of Mark because Markian is the style of writing that Mark uses, and this is what the commentators use throughout their dense commentaries. And it's like, you're just being fancy now, right? I mean, this is kind of silly. All right, so there we go. So Mark 16, 1 through 8 is what's known as the shorter ending of Mark. There is universal agreement that that is canon. Like that is the original. If we know it's in the original, we're all good with that. Not a problem. Mark 16, 9 through 20 is the longer ending of Mark. This is the part. But wait, there's more. There's an alternate shorter ending of Mark that's actually included on page 552 in your handout in the expanded footnote for the ESV. <clears throat> at least one manuscript inserts additional material after verse 14. Some manuscripts include the following after verse 8. And so, so you get like this, there's this extra scenario, right? There's virtually nobody that aligns with this one. Like that, that would be, if you read somebody, you're like, yes, we believe in the, the verse in between verses 8 and 9. Like slowly back away from that resource. They're making assumptions that are wildly inconsistent with lots of other uh, standard interpretational practices. All right, so here's the, the most common canonical, that's hard to say, the most common, I write things sometimes without actually saying them out loud, and I say them out loud and say, like, oh, it's canonical too, but, all right, the most common canonical view, so Mark 16, 1 through 8, Mark 16, 1 through 20, 1 through 8 plus this, like, parentheses 9 thing, and then, like, the all-in view. We're going to talk about the top two. Because basically nobody, nobody's really aligned with these. But I did want to acknowledge they do in fact exist. So there we go. All right. So you might be thinking, so like where in the world, like where in the world do we begin with this? <laughs> there you go. Use the force, Luke. That's exactly right. All right. So where do we start? So when we have a question about the Bible, where do we start? With the Bible, yes, we start with the Bible. All right, so this is what textual criticism actually looks like. So, Catechum uh, Sema, this is, I picked a random, just a random text that somebody like, this is a pretty substantial text. Uh, they found this one in, I think it was around in the early 300s, late 200s, early 300s, so it's a pretty old text. And they study all the different branches of it. Like, how does this compare to this? And what about this? This is like a, We've got a fragment here, and we've got a part of a few pages here, and we've got a, another codice over here, and, and this, is, this is not even a major 
text. Okay, so there are thousands and thousands and thousands of graphs that look like this for all the different, and if right now your head's going, I don't like that. <laughs> Just thank God that there are some that do, right? This is where God uses all these crazy wonky gifts that he gives to us, and it's for his glory and for our benefit, and I think it's amazing. Now, there's one thing I want you to, to notice about this particular one. So, so here's, the, here's one major branch. Here's another major branch. But do you see that they are related right here? You see this little dotted line right here? This is where we think the person who wrote this one had access to this and to this. So it's not just we have nice, clean, straight lines. No, 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 no. They're all interwoven. Insert family tree joke here, right? I mean, this is the, it, it, is, it is very, very complicated. Now, this is also really good because you tend to get lots of different influences that converge back in and point people back to the text. And the study of how this compares to this, compares to this, compares to this, compares to this, compares to all the other pages that look like this is textual criticism. Those things get distilled and distilled and distilled and condensed all the way down to the little footnote in your Bible. Now think about years and years and years of your life work being distilled down to, well, are we going to include that footnote or are we not? So I will, I will gently urge us not to skip past what decades and hundreds of years of research has really pushed toward helping us understand. So just, just kind of be aware of that. All right, so a summary of textual criticism. This is way too many words to put on a page, but I just wanted to give you an idea. This is straight out of Wikipedia. I'm using Wikipedia for my sources today because most people who would argue against the, the veracity of the Bible are going to use resources like Wikipedia. So I want to use the same resources and show you this is actually all very, very trustworthy. So when I talked a minute ago about how many manuscripts we have, we have about 5,800 Greek, we have about 10,000 Latin, and then 9,300 others in different languages. When you start to compare all of those, we get somewhere in the neighborhood, it could be 400,000, but at least 300,000 variants. You're like, 300,000 variants? This sounds awful. All right, so if you have 10 pieces of ancient paper that all say one thing, and you have one that says another, that's 10 variants. That's how they count them. They don't count that as one. So it's a super wonky counting. You're like, well, that doesn't make sense. I totally agree. And the inflation of this number and the misunderstanding of how the counting actually occurs can lead somebody to go, well, I can't trust my Bible if there's 300,000 variants. There's really not. Now, uh, let me, let me sum, gross, I'm going to grossly summarize those variants. About 95% of them are variants of spelling and word order. And in Greek, word order almost never matters. So, like, what is your full name, Miss Colleen? Your full name. 
Winifred Colleen Massengale Barron. Awesome. And, and I refer to you as Miss Colleen. And you respond to that. And you wouldn't consider that a problem or wrong. No, but that's a variant. You with me? Cool. 95% of them fall into that category. And I would probably misspell Winifred. I don't know if it's got one in or two or three. I mean, I don't know. Who, who knows, right? It's like, I'm not really sure. That's a variant. So 95% of them fall into that. The other 5% where you're like, well, well, like what are those about? Verses that are there are not there. Sections that are there are not there. But in none of those situations is any major doctrine of Scripture up for grabs. All of those have to do with areas of Scripture that are descriptive, not prescriptive, or areas of Scripture that show up somewhere else, which is what we'll talk about next week with Mark, 9, Mark 16, 9 through 20. How we can, we can find almost all of the text of Mark 16, 9 through 20 in the other Gospels. Like almost all. And the part we can't is one of the reasons we look at it with a real serious side eye. We're going to talk about them snakes, okay? So we, we will get to that, Lord willing, next week, so don't, don't worry. All right, so summary of textual criticism, uh, that's where we are. Uh, a couple of more points on this, and then we'll switch uh, gears into the text. So there's three major text types of the New Testament. You can think about these as big families of related documents, okay? The big families of related documents, probably the easiest way to think about it. There's the Alexandrian text. This is the oldest uh, this is where we get Codex Vaticanus, Codex, I can never say this word right. Uh, this is where, what the, this is the, the Greek text that the NIV, New American, New American Standard, RSV, the ESV, the Christian Standard, and the NA28, we'll talk about that in a second. NA28, it's Greek to me, because it's in Greek. <laughs> Except for the introduction, which is in German. <laughs> You think I'm kidding. <laughs> Only recently did they start translating the introduction into English. It's like, thank you for having pity on us lazy Americans. Uh, there's the Western family. There's virtually no English texts that are derivatives of the Western. And then there's the Byzantine. Now, the Byzantine comes a little bit later, but this thing was copied. Like, this is the massive amount of copies of copies of copies of copies. This is where, uh, this is the text that Erasmus the guy who put the uh, Textus Receptus. Yes, I have one of those too. This is a different Greek translation of the New Testament. Um, this is what his basis for his translation, which was the basis for the King James and the New King James. Do you remember the two translations from a few slides ago that didn't make any comments? Because in those texts, from the Byzantine text, verses nine through 20 are in fact there. So there's no need for them to make a comment because it was there. Now, when I said there was a lot of copies made of this, 95% of all of our manuscripts that we have are from the Byzantine. But the great thing is, the like you can, if you knew Greek, you could open these up and read through and compare them, and you'd go, there's not a lot of difference here. Right, right. They're shockingly similar in the vast majority of places. Oh, I gotta show you this one too. Um, I use a lot of different resources uh, I, I look at new resources, I look at old resources. This one's in a bag because the book is literally falling apart. And sometimes I'll, I'll reference a commentary that was written 75, 100, 200, 300 years ago. And uh, 
for the ones that have been written in the last 120, 130 years, there's a version of this. This is the NA28, 28th edition. This is not the NA28. This is like the NA14 or something. So I have a whole bunch of different versions of this so that when I'm reading an old commentary, I can go and find the version of this that was relevant at that time and see what the best academic resource available to that commentator was and check and see were they using good textual work at that time or was this somebody who was a bit sloppy? And some of you would go, that seems like overkill. I like books, okay? So just stay in your lane and I'll stay in mine. And so we'll all be happy. All right. So there we go. So this is some, some basics about uh, textual criticism. Now, um, so if you go back here, like we just said, the King James, New King James doesn't have anything here because they would have been present in the Byzantine. And you might be thinking, well, are there other verses that aren't present? Yes, there are other verses. Here's a list of the, the most common ones that are not in modern translations. And if you were to go and read all of these, you would not find a single major doctrine of scripture that is referenced or challenged or supported, or it's just, it's some, it's the detail stuff, which is great. I want all the detail we can get. Now, there's two different ways to talk about this slide. There's a way to talk about it that assumes the Textus Receptus, or the King James text, the, the basis for the King James text is right so that modern translations remove these verses. You may have heard this language before. There's a way to talk about these verses where the NA28 is right and the Textus Receptus added verses that shouldn't have been there. You will know where I stand before we end up with class today. So just, there we go. Um, all right, so th this is just some, some additional verse. So back to our big question, where does Mark's gospel actually end? Uh, we'll do some arguments for a uh, ending of Mark 16, 8. Uh, if you read Greek, anybody read Greek, taking Greek classes? I know Dave said Greek classes, Mitch said Greek classes, anybody else have Greek classes? Uh, I have, uh, have you had Greek classes? Long time. Long time, that's awesome, I didn't know that, that's pretty cool, nice. Uh, I have never had a formal Greek class. I have read several grammars. I have gotten to where I can probably at a five or six year old level read through a Greek New Testament and identify most of the words and have a good idea of like, oh, okay, I think I understand what's going on. But for me, the, the thing that I can latch onto easiest is the style of the writer's word choice and word order for sentences. And you've probably gotten a note from somebody you know really well. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I absolutely believe, even if they didn't sign this, that, that I know who wrote this. And if somebody signed their name to something you know they didn't write, it, it doesn't sound like them, right? It just, you're like, that just doesn't, I don't think that's right. That's how Mark 16, 9 through 20 are. It is shockingly, abundantly, unbelievably not like the style of Mark 16, Mark uh, 1, 1 through 16, 8. It is radically different. It's as if Paul started writing the last 12 verses. Like it's, and, and we've talked before about how basic Mark's gospel is. The commentators hate it because it's so simple and uh, like it's not the elevated style of Mark. And I, I remember when I started reading uh, Greek, I thought there's never going to be a day where I can get, oh yeah, there actually is. It's pretty straightforward. So that's one data point. The second data point is the number of brand new words that are introduced 
in Mark 16, 9 through 20 that don't show up anywhere else in Mark's gospel. Mark has this habit of introducing brand new words sporadically throughout his gospel, but the density of them in 16, 9 through 20 is shockingly higher than anywhere else in Mark's gospel. So the style is different and the words are different, which leads me to believe that Mark didn't actually write it. Now, this is not the end of the world, and it is not the end-all be-all as to whether or not this is canon or not canon, because who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses, right. What's the very last part of the fifth book of the Bible? Moses' death. Who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses. Who wrote the part about Moses' death? Maybe Moses? <laughs> like, what a freaky day that is. <laughs> You're going to write this down now, big boy. He's like, uh, what? <laughs> okay. Maybe Moses wrote it. Maybe somebody else wrote it. But it is widely acknowledged to be canon because it was all packaged together at the same time. So what I don't want you to hear me say is I don't want you to hear me say, even if somebody else wrote it, that that absolutely means it's not canon. It might be. It might not be. <laughs> So let's keep going with this argument real quick. Uh, there's, there's virtually, and, and I, I struggled whether I wanted to put virtually or not on the slide here. But I'm, I'll say it. There's virtually no modern scholar that believes Mark, 9, uh, Mark 16, 9 through 20 is canon. Uh, I say virtually because there are a few people who have managed to create websites that you can Google um, that do have some information that, that I would argue is weak-ish arguing the other direction. So I'm going to share their argument with you. The biggest, baddest, most significant argument is that the church fathers, the early church fathers, quoted Mark 16, 9 through 20. Now, the crazy thing about the early church fathers is they wrote a ton of letters. Like it's, <laughs> they wrote letters like we send texts. It's unbelievable. But their letters weren't like our texts their letters included massive portions of scripture. If we didn't have a single manuscript from the first two to 300 years after the Bible was written, after the New Testament was written, we could reconstruct virtually all of the New Testament just from the letters from the early church fathers. They quoted it that much. And this is the thing that keeps, like it just, it pummels me how little I encourage us, other people, friends, Christians, with the text of Scripture itself. Like, they just, it was unbelievable. And I don't know if they realized what they were doing. I, I can't imagine that they would have thought, you know, 1,800 years later, somebody's going to be studying our letters. I might have focused a little more on the grammar. I don't know, Irenaeus, but there, there's that. Um, but this is one of the major arguments for including it. My rebuttal, I'll stand over here would be they quoted a bunch of other stuff, too, that wasn't canon. So there's that. Uh, and then the second major argument is that it's in my King James, and therefore it's right. And I, I, I just, I can't, I can't get on board with that. Um, so because of that, because of that, so we've got a Textus Receptus, which is a good, helpful Greek New Testament. We've got the NA28. It's actually the, the Nestle Island. Am I saying it right? Nestle Aland? 
I've heard it pronounced 47 different ways. I'm scared to death to pronounce it because I'm going to meet these guys in heaven one day, and they're going to like, you butchered my name every time you say it. So I just say N-A, and it makes it really simple. Um, so what we use in this class is the N-A-28 and the derivative uh, texts from it. But we still haven't answered the question, right? We still haven't answered the original question. So what do we do with Mark 16, 9 through 20? And let's just soak on this for just a minute because I need to drink. point is where I really want us to, to engage because one of the things that Christians should never be is that Christians should never shy away from the truth right we know the closer we get to the truth the more Christ and his word are verified awesome so to any and all challenges to the Bible bring it <laughs> let's have that conversation and you tell me how often and, and how clear and uh, transparent is a big word today. How transparent it is that we would put a footnote in our Bibles that says we're not sure about this next part. That's awesome. Right? Let's be completely candid with the reader about where we actually are here. All right. So you might be wondering, so what's Jim's view on this? All right. So some questions are hard to answer. Right? Let's just let's acknowledge that this is really, really challenging. Uh, some questions don't have a definitive answer. I took a lot of math classes, and some questions can't be answered. Cool. Here you go. Sorry. Uh, keep an open mind and an open hand. If you disagree on this, I want to be your brother. <laughs> okay? I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to fight. Um, we, we can look at resources, and I will have a blast doing it. But we're not going to get angry doing this, right? Uh, and then don't be embarrassed. Don't ever be embarrassed about, well, I don't know that I can trust that part of you can trust God's word. Yes, this is good. This is very, very good. Now, does this answer the question? No. All right, I'll give you my real view. Um, go back to Mark 1.1. 1, 1. Mark 1.1. 1, 1. Who would like to read Mark 1 1? Big, loud, strong voice. Dave, you got it? Sure. Whoop, stop. The what? The beginning. The beginning of the what? Of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Did Mark claim he was writing everything? No. In the Greek, the very first word is arche, it's beginning. He declares up front, he's only telling us the beginning of this story. So if Mark ends at Mark 16, 8, I'm cool with that because Mark didn't make a claim like Luke did at the beginning of Luke's gospel that, boys and girls, I'm going to tell it all. I've talked to everybody. And Theophilus, buckle your seatbelts. We've got all the details. They're coming right up. That's not the claim Mark made. Mark literally said just the beginning. So I'm cool with that. And what is Mark's overarching goal in the gospel of Mark? It is to show who Jesus is. So where does Mark, where does Mark, I think, actually end with Mark 16, 8 and a couple verses before that? He says, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he has risen. What more do we need? <laughs> oh, my goodness. 
The fact that it freaked a couple of people out and they left scared at the very end is not the point. The point is the tomb is empty. <laughs> and Mark has covered the gospel at that point. And Mark being the brief, like we're, we don't need to say more than we need to say. This makes total sense for me why the Spirit would say, okay, you're done writing. There will be others that come behind you a couple of decades later that write Matthew and Luke and John. And that's cool. So, if you hold this view, awesome. If you don't, awesome. Let's talk more. I like dialogue about this. So now let's turn to your handout. I'm going to point out three things and we'll be done. I knew there was no universe in which I could do that in 20 minutes. I just needed to not lose you, so there was that. Uh, all right, so on page 553, down two-thirds of the way down the text, it says, uh, and told those who had been with him as they mourned. That's one of those unique words in Mark's gospel. It doesn't show up anywhere else in Mark's gospel. Verse 11, but when they heard that he was alive and he had been seen, this is another unique word in Mark's gospel. It shows up twice. It shows up in 1611 and 1614. You're like, okay, so that's the second unique word. Turn the page, top of page 554. They would not believe it. That's another unique word in Mark's gospel. So we're, we're two verses in, and he's thrown three new words in at us, right? And you're like, uh, I think you, you might see what's going on here. All right, so let's keep going. Uh, after these things, he appeared in another. That word another only shows up there in Mark's gospel. 1612. I think I've highlighted all these. Uh, form, this is Morphe, in another form, that's a new unique word in Mark's gospel. And those are the unique words in Mark 9, Mark 16, 9 through 12. Sorry, I've so got 9 through 20 in my head that I have undoubtedly mentioned Mark 9, which was a fantastic chapter, but not what we're talking about today. So, all right, so let's flip over to the back. Uh, what's the point? Um, uh, application number one, details in my copy I have in parentheses like footnotes matter. <laughs> so please don't skip the footnotes. Uh, it's very likely someone's entire life was dedicated to making sure that was correct. Which is still just mind-boggling to me, but cool, right? Use the gifts God gave you. So what do we do with that? Number one, use all available resources, right? Use it all. Everything that we're provided, let's use it. God is worthy of that effort. And then application number two, Bible study isn't easy. And if you thought it was, you're in the wrong class. So, <laughs> I mean, I like you in this class, but <laughs> we don't do easy stuff. <laughs> so what do we do with that? Number two, praise God for his word and for the opportunity to study it. He doesn't even owe us his word. Right? He certainly doesn't owe us a copy that we can carry around with in our pocket. Right? We get the opportunity to do this. It's just like, what a blessing. The vast majority of Christians in the history of Christendom have not had access to a physical or electronic copy of the Bible that they could, at will, engage with. So let's celebrate that. Oh, my goodness. And let's continue having conversations at the, about the parts that we go... So next week, Lord willing, what we'll look at is where else in the New Testament 
Mark 16, 9 through 20, I personally think, borrows some language and somebody comes along with a semi-deliberate, let's, let's tidy this up and have a better ending than they ran away scared, <laughs> which again reinforces how amazing this, all this stuff was. Like, I, I would argue Mark ends with this I'm terrified moment to double down on the shock of the tomb is empty. Like, whoa, we just left the character, the last scene, the, the emotional state of the last characters we see is shock. Well, maybe we should be shocked too that the tomb is empty. <laughs> it's okay, the tomb is empty. That's an amazing truth. It's wonderful. All right, I need a nap now. Um, so did, does that make, I know I didn't breathe much, so I'm gonna pause here for just a second. Questions, is that, did it generally make sense? Yes, okay. All right, so if you've got questions, send them to me this week. I'd love to bake those questions and any answers we can find into next week's lesson. Uh, but we've got next week's handout on the table over there. I, I'm preemptive, I printed the week after that too, which is, Lord willing, our last week in Mark. Two weeks from today, we finish this thing up. Like, what in the world? I'm gonna hyperventilate. All right, so you should have on your table our weekly update. So if you would, uh, lean in, engage with that, write down any prayer requests, um, and that would be great. Once you have prayed as a group over those, then uh, you are free to go and to worship this one who is no longer in the tomb. It's amazing. And also, one more thing, a prayer request for me. I wrote a book about our Bible study process. So hopefully in a couple of weeks, this will be in your hands. Um, and this is our next series is going through our process. We'll do a, spend a few weeks in this and then um, we'll start Philippians and I'm excited. <coughs> Yay. So a big chunk of the underpinning of what we've done today is in here. So there's that. All right. Thanks for coming today, guys. Appreciate you. Thanks for engaging. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast YouTube channel, and weekly email. You can subscribe to all three of those at OurSundaySchool.com. Grace and peace to you.